Grace, mercy, and God's peace be with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to read these verses to you from Holy Scripture. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's Matthew 25, verses 35 through 36, and verse 40. You may be seated. It's good to be with you today. I'm Pastor Nidick. Uh, I've met a couple of you over the years. I was pastor at Calvary Lutheran Church in Rio Rancho for, oh, almost 26 years, retired a couple of years ago. I've been a hospital chaplain for a while. I've been serving our sister congregation, Emmanuel, in Las Vegas, New Mexico, uh, twice a month and until just recently, um, Christ the King in Las Lunas, New Mexico. But praise God, they've just gotten a pastor, so I no longer have that responsibility. My parents were members of Christ Lutheran Church for quite a few years back in the 80s. My dad, Victor Nidick, some of you may remember him, uh, was an elder here. Well, let's get to the sermon. Not too long ago, I was standing in line at uh, the Walmart customer service window, waiting my turn. I was returning a fish tank, and the line wasn't moving. There were half a dozen or so people in front of me. It seems that there was a homeless man standing at the counter, arguing with the clerk, and he was stinky. His hair was a mess. Um, he hadn't washed or shaved for a long time, you could tell. He was very agitated. But he was a real customer, and to prove that he was a customer, he kept showing the, the lady behind the counter his receipt. But he didn't want to return anything. He just wanted to use the phone. There was a phone back there by the counter. And the clerk was patiently trying to explain to him that it was against store policy to let customers use the phone. But he was persistent. He was argumentative. The line kept getting longer. People were coming in beside me, behind me. So a manager came over to help. And then the argument continued with her. And finally, both the clerk and the manager gave in and told the man that he could use the phone once the line of customers had been taken care of, but he needed to step away from the counter. And so he did. He went over, stepped over to the wall, stood there, looking agitated, rustling his receipt, looking at it, talking to himself. Well, with him out of the way, the line moved quickly. I returned my fish tank and left. Then on the way to my car, I started thinking, why was it necessary to humiliate this man by arguing with him about whether he could use the phone when it was such a simple request? He was homeless. He didn't have a phone. What was the big deal with just letting him use the phone for a couple of minutes behind the counter? And I remembered the question Charles Sheldon raised over 100 years ago 
He wrote a famous book that's now a Christian classic. It's called In His Steps. And in this book, In His Steps, Charles Sheldon asked this question, what would Jesus do? So over and over, I asked myself that question. What would Jesus do in this situation? The answer I got was that I should have just offered to let this homeless man use my phone. I could have dialed it for him, let him use the phone, say what he had to say, he'd have given it back, and that'd been over. It'd been over with. Or I could have bought him one of those throwaway phones, you know, the things they call a burner. Just got him a phone, say, here, make all the phones that you've got minutes for. But I didn't do anything. Well, back home in my study, I found my little copy of In His Steps, dusted it off, and I read the whole thing. Hadn't read it for years and years. A couple of decades ago, the book enjoyed something of a revival. It was popular once again to ask, what would Jesus do? People wore little bracelets with that on it. They'd have bumper stickers, stickers with what would Jesus do? But I discovered in pastor's conferences that not everybody likes Charles Sheldon's book in his steps. And they don't like his question, what would Jesus do? And that's because Sheldon doesn't say anything about justification. He has no focus at all on how sinners are forgiven by God and declared righteous. And that, of course, is the central theme of all of St. Paul's letters. St. Paul focuses on the justifying work of Jesus. To justify means to forgive, to declare righteous. And according to St. Paul, sinners are justified freely by grace through faith in Christ Jesus and not by any human works. You could get the impression from Sheldon that one is righteous by being Christianized, that is, by behaving in a moral and self-sacrificial way. We'd call that works righteousness, something very different from what St. Paul taught. As Lutherans, we agree with St. Paul and his doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. We don't look to our good works to save us. We look to the cross of Jesus to make us right with God to gain for us forgiveness, to give us a home in heaven. So that's our emphasis. It's always been our emphasis. It always will be as Missouri Synod Lutherans. But then what? Saved by grace, through faith in Christ, what do we do now? The answer is that we follow in the steps of Jesus. Where'd Sheldon get that phrase anyway? Well, he got it from St. Peter, who tells us that Jesus suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. 1 Peter 1, 21. So we're back to the central question of Charles Sheldon. What would Jesus do? What does it mean to follow in the steps of Jesus? Well, those who don't 
like that question of Sheldon, what would Jesus do, point out that we really have no idea what Jesus would do in one situation or another. That's true. But we do have a pretty good idea of what Jesus would have us do. That's because we have the Gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have the letters of the apostles, people who walked with Jesus, who heard him, who saw him do his miracles, who lived with him for three and a half years. These writings help us figure out what Jesus would have us do. And that's really the better question. But it can be even better. We can make it more personal. What would Jesus have me do? Maybe you've noticed there are countries plagued with problems that aren't going away. They seem to be getting worse. Now here's a few of them. Hunger, homelessness, alcoholism, drug addiction, gun violence, suicide, racism. I could go on. I pray about these problems every day. But as much as I pray, they don't seem to be going away. Sometimes they're the topic of conversation. Maybe they're brought up by a coworker at the office. Maybe a family member at the dinner table. Or maybe by a neighbor who's helping us work on a project in the garage or commuting with somebody to a destination. When the subject comes up, how do we respond? Do we answer with talking points from our particular political party? Do we pivot? Do we change the subject? Do we dismiss the whole thing, just say, well, it's not my problem? But what would Jesus have me do? What would, have, would he have me just shove it all under the rug? I don't think so. Being a disciple of Jesus, being redeemed by his death on the cross, being baptized into him so that our minds are renewed after his image by faith, means we adopt the values of Jesus. We take seriously the things Jesus is concerned about, and we do whatever we can to help the hurting. Again, here's what Jesus says in Matthew 25. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. As you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. That's quite a long list of things Jesus thinks are important. Where do we start? I think we start by letting the Holy Spirit mold us into servants like Jesus. Consider this example. It's the Last Supper. It takes place in a rented house. Everybody shows up with dirty feet. They had to walk through the streets of Jerusalem 
throw all the manure and the trash and the rotten vegetables that people throw out in the mud and who knows what else. They wear sandals. Their feet are filthy. In those days, they would provide a basin of water, towel for people to either wash their own feet or if the household was rich, they'd have a slave wash a visitor's feet. But nobody did that at the Last Supper. Wasn't any slave there. None of the disciples washed their own feet. They all gathered around the table. They would lie on couches with their feet facing outward and then lay one arm over the arm of the couch and then they'd eat with this arm. Their feet would be directed away. Well, when Jesus saw that, he got up, he stripped to the waist, he got a basin of water and a towel, and then he went from disciple to disciple washing their dirty feet. They didn't like that. They said, no, Lord. You shouldn't be doing this. You're much too important. But Jesus tells them, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So that's the starting place for discipleship. It's where every pastor and layman begins. When we take up our cross to follow Jesus, we also take up our towel and our wash basin. Disciples of Jesus are servants of one another who wash feet. What does that mean? This is very important. It means that disciples willingly do unsavory tasks in Jesus' name that demonstrate God's love for our neighbor. Recently, I was doing some devotional reading in the Gospel of Luke. They came across these words of Jesus. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Apparently, during Jesus' ministry, there were people who thought of themselves as disciples, but who weren't living what Jesus taught, and they had no intention of it. That's not a disciple. Disciples of Jesus take his words seriously, and with the Spirit's help, they do them. One of the things Jesus' disciples do is feed the hungry. This is important to Jesus. He mentions it more than once. One time Jesus said, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Good fathers don't reply to their hungry children who ask for food with cruelty or sarcasm. They give them something to eat. When it's a matter of hunger, everyone is our father or mother or brother or sister or son or daughter. All hungry people are our family because God is the father of us all and all of us are his children. 
He cares for each of us deeply. He grieves when one of his children is lost and hungry, whether from their own fault or not. A loving father can't help but hear the cry of his hungry child and do whatever he can to feed him. Well, that describes Jesus. Another of the great stories of the Gospels is Jesus feeding the 5,000. Jesus and the disciples are out in a very remote place, a long way from town. He spent the whole day teaching the people. It's getting late. The sun is setting low in the west. The disciples are starting to get concerned, so they tell Jesus to send the people away so they can go into the towns and buy food for themselves. But Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. Well, that really distresses the disciples. They've already taken inventory of the food supply. There's not much. A couple of loaves of bread and some fish. That's about it. A little boy donated his lunch. That's all Jesus needed. He takes what they have. He blesses it. He breaks it. The disciples start to distribute it and feed the people. And everyone ends up having plenty to eat. And there are 12 baskets full of food left over. Now, this story has much to teach us. One thing it teaches us is that even if we have very little, we have something to share. It teaches us that Jesus can multiply our very little, make it big, big enough to feed lots of hungry people. But it has to start with our own five loaves and two little fish. Today, usually we give our five loaves and two fish through our offerings at church or checks that we send to charities or the coins that we put in LWML mite boxes. But what about the hungry man on the corner as we run our errands? As you go home from church today, it wouldn't surprise me if you see some hungry person on a corner. They'll have a sign that says, homeless, hungry, anything helps, God bless. How many of you have seen a sign like that before? I see them every day. Well, you know, we don't need to analyze whether that person's a drunk or whether he's a dope addict. That's not our problem. Jesus doesn't ask us to analyze the condition of the other person. He asks us to look at our own heart. And he says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. A check in the offering plate might feed him in a couple of weeks after it gets deposited in the bank and then the treasurer writes the check and one goes to God Cares About You and another one goes to Joy Junction or the Albuquerque Rescue Mission or whatever. And then eventually they'll be able to buy some food and have a dinner and then that person could come and eat. That could be several weeks. What about today? What's he going to do to eat today? How about this? I got this idea from my son, my middle son, Nathan. 
when you go shopping, buy some non-perishable, ready-to-eat food with those lift-off off tops. You just pop off the top, it's ready to eat. SpaghettiOs, something like that. Vienna sausages, a little thing of water. Put a few items in those throwaway Smiths and Walmart bags that have become so controversial. Keep a few bags in your car. When you pass somebody on the corner, just say, could you use some food? And I haven't had anybody yet say no. They all say yes. And then say, well, this is from Jesus. God bless your day. You know, when you do something like that, you're going to be doing exactly what Jesus said. I was hungry and you gave me food. You might possibly save a life. You'll definitely feel joy. And you'll be walking in Jesus' steps. In the name of Jesus, amen.